in the afternoon worship services is a custom here, as in the other Reformed churches, to go through the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a confession of the faith rooted in the time of the Great Reformation. At the present place in the Catechism, we're going through the Apostles' Creed, the Articles of the Christian Faith, and you've come, I understand, to Lord's Day 17, where we confess about the resurrection of Jesus uh, from the grave. In connection with that confession, we're going to read from Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is perhaps the, uh, the best-known passage in the, Old, in the New Testament where Paul deals with the resurrection, not only of Christ, but the resurrection of believers as well. We're going to read together 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 34, and then 50 through 58, before turning our attention to our confessional reading in Lord's Day 17. This is the word of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, Then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all 
in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Then we jump ahead to uh, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is the word of God. May he bless it in our hearing this afternoon. Let's turn our attention then to our confessional reading, the Catechism, Lord's Day 17, page 531, in the back of the Book of Praise. We receive a summary of what we confess when we say that Christ rose from the dead. I believe in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The question there is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? The answer is given, first, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, By his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. This is our confession. Beloved in Christ our Lord, do you ever question what we're doing here in church, week in and week out, the effort that you put in to get here Sunday mornings, Sunday afternoon, again, perhaps you have a young family like I do, and it's a lot of work uh, to get out the door for 9.30 church on Sunday mornings. Or perhaps you think more deeply about this and you wonder what the effort is that you put into your struggle against sin. You hate the sin that you commit. We think of this morning's sermon on repentance. Why you put so much effort into holiness and godliness. Or perhaps you're in a different place this afternoon and you simply wonder why you go through the motions, why you do this thing week in and week out, whether there's any real purpose to it all. You feel like you're just passing time. The Apostle Paul understands 
all these kinds of questions. In fact, he says that life would be like that, uh, simply empty and meaningless, a uh, passing of time, purposeless, without real goals and destinations, if it weren't for one crucial fact. That's the resurrection of Jesus. If we're not for the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, life would be, as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, simply a chasing after the wind. If it weren't for the resurrection, life would just simply be passing time until you die. Paul gets very personal, actually, in our passage, doesn't he? He addresses his own situation, his own task as a preacher of the gospel. When he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, he says, our preaching is in vain. I could say the same thing. If Christ hasn't been raised, then it was an entirely waste of time for me to come up here this morning or on Friday evening and to share the gospel with you. And same with the other preachers who come here week in and week out. It's a waste of time if Christ hasn't been raised and the elders are wasting their time. Then you might as well tell Pastor Vanderveld that he shouldn't come. What about you? What Paul says to us is, if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is in vain. And it's empty. Then you're wasting your time this afternoon, and you've wasted a lot of time, many of you, over the years. That's why he writes that if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. Because we've wasted our time. We ought to have been living it up with the rest of mankind. If this is all there is... If life simply consists of what there is between conception and death, then don't bother with Christianity. And certainly don't bother with a, a call that tells you to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And certainly don't bother with self-sacrificial living. Paul gives a personal example in, in the passage we read together. He says, why would I bother fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus if Christ hasn't in fact been raised? Why would you lay your life on the line? Why would people commit to ministry overseas, uh, to traveling to countries like Iraq and Iran? Why would Christians in places like Pakistan and North Korea confess Christ if Christ has not been raised? If Christ remained in the grave, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so fundamental to the Christian faith. If Christ had not been raised, then you might as well abandon hope and give up here. And in fact, if you stick it out, then you are to be most pitied in this world. But this afternoon, we're going to see that Christ has, in fact, been raised, and that, that changes absolutely everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything in this world. The Apostle Paul is busy addressing the Corinthians who have been questioning the resurrection from the dead and he holds up as proof to them the reality that Christ has been raised from the dead. And he lays the proofs for us in his chapter and they're convincing solid proofs. The first thing he does is he, he cites to us the reality that Christ arose in fulfillment of the scriptures. That is, it was foretold long ago. We sang together from Psalm 16. I like how in this Bible translation, it's got all those uh, proof texts alongside. If you go to verse 4 of chapter 15, you look at the end there, it says Psalm 16, verse 9 to 11. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We sang it together. He will not let his Holy One see corruption. That was David um, some thousand years. I don't know off the top of my head anymore how much earlier David was than the Christ. Some thousand years before Christ comes, David is singing about 
the Holy One who would not see corruption. And so Paul says, listen, the, the resurrection of Jesus was long foretold. That's what Peter did at Pentecost too. He cited the same psalm, Psalm 16. He said, read the scriptures and you'll know that this was always to be happening to the Messiah. But perhaps that's not convincing to somebody who doesn't believe the Old Testament is the word of God. And so Paul comes with other proofs. He says, I've got eyewitnesses. We've got eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appeared to Cephas, he says. That's Peter. Then he appeared to the, to the 12, and perhaps that's not enough eyewitnesses for you. Paul says, well, then he appeared to 500 people at one time. And he actually encourages the, the Corinthians to say, listen, if you don't believe me, then go and check out their story. Some of them have died already. Some of them are still alive. Go do some interviews. See for yourself that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He wants the Corinthians to understand, listen, the resurrection of Jesus is not something you can dismiss. It is a historical fact that we can present to the world, and then we ought to ask the question, what difference does it make? And what are you going to do about it? If in this life there is an empty tomb, we are all confronted with the reality of what do we do with this man who died, was laid in the tomb, and three days later rose again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that important. When I first uh, preached this sermon back in, in Langley, then my catechism students were taking an apologetics course at the high school there in Crato High, and they had just read the book, The Case for Christ, by Lee Strobel. I noticed it's on the, the bookshelf out there in the hallway as well, and they had watched the movie based on the same book. Strobel is an investigative journalist, and the story of his life is significant. He was an atheist, and his wife converted to Christ. His wife became a Christian, and he himself, as a committed atheist, was determined, uh, was determined to prove that her Christianity was false. And so he went about investigating the claims of Christianity. And the first thing that he did was he investigated the resurrection. Why? Well, because somebody had said to him, if the resurrection isn't true, then Christianity falls apart. It's a house of cards. You take that one card out, and it all falls apart. It all falls apart if Jesus hasn't been raised. I don't know if you know the story of Lee Strobel, what happened as he went about trying to prove that the resurrection wasn't a historical event. Well, he encountered the risen Christ. He was converted. The very Jesus he was trying to disprove, he encountered by faith, and he became one of the staunchest defenders of the gospel in our day. But why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Why is your faith in vain if Christ has not been raised, and why should it change everything about your life if it's true? Well, that's what the catechism is making clear to us. What does it benefit you that Christ has been raised? And it gives the answer in three different parts, and I've summarized it this way. Christ's resurrection is your guarantee. It's the guarantee of your new status. That's the first uh, section there. It's the guarantee of your new life. That's the second section. And the third section is it's the guarantee of your new future. If you pay really careful attention to those three um, points, and I try to ask you for some dogmatic categories that correspond with those three points, I wonder if you could give them to me. The, the fancy words that we attach to these three parts of the Christian doctrine. The first is justification. The second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. 
We're going to see that the resurrection of Christ anchors our justification, I'll explain what that means, and our sanctification and our glorification. The resurrection of Christ is that important. So Paul has been addressing these Christians who are not believing, who are denying the resurrection of the dead, and by extension denying the resurrection of Jesus. And he's busy showing them why it matters. And he starts in this connection with verse 17. Where he comes in this connection to verse 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Why is your faith futile? He says, you are still in your sins. See, without the resurrection of Christ from the dead, you are still in your sins. There can be no forgiveness of sins. There can be no justification without the resurrection. Let me explain. Justification, the catechism students ought to know, is the act of God in declaring us to be not guilty and righteous before him. Justification is courtroom language. You have to imagine standing in the docket before the great judge of heaven and earth as those who have committed sin and are fully guilty before God, in that moment justification is God declaring us to be righteous, not because of our own merits, but for the sake of Christ our Lord. Declaring us to be free of all the charges that are justly held against us in that courtroom. And I hope you know how justification happens. This is the glorious gospel. It happens simply by faith in Christ. We believe the good news. We believe the gospel. And Christ's righteousness is accredited to our account. It is placed on our account. The moment that we believe in Christ, we are accounted righteous before God. Back to the resurrection. Paul says in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not risen, you are not justified before God, then your faith is empty, then you are still guilty before God, then you still stand before his throne at the end of time, and you will have to give an account for every careless word you have uttered, for every sin that you have ever committed. Why is that? Why is the resurrection of Christ so important for our justification? Well, to state the obvious, if Christ were not raised, he would still be dead. We would have a dead Savior. The grave would have won the victory over Christ. The curse of death would not have been lifted. What's more, the cross would be emptied of its significance and its power. If Christ had remained in the grave, it would signify to us that his sacrifice was not acceptable to God. It would have signaled to us that his death did not accomplish anything on our behalf. It was just an empty and tragic gesture. The cross is nothing without the empty tomb. You would have no forgiveness. You would have no justification before God. You would remain dead in your trespasses and sins, and your faith would be empty. But then Paul comes with the triumphant message of the gospel of Easter, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead. Christ has been raised. Put that in all caps. Follow it with as many exclamation marks as you can muster because it changes absolutely everything because it means that everything else is true. It means that the cross is the glorious victory of Christ over death, over sin, over the devil, his whole dominion. It signs, seals, and delivers to us that the forgiveness of sins is ours through the precious blood of Jesus. 
He has actually, the catechism says, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. In a world in which death is inescapable, death will come to each one of us unless Christ returns. We confess with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he has truly overcome death. I wonder if you remember, I think this was some weeks ago that Reverend Musker preached on Lord's Day 16, the previous Lord's Day. The question was asked, why did Christ have to die? And it was made clear there that death was the punishment for sin from the very beginning. God's justice and truth demanded that death be the, the, the punishment for sin in our place. And we could go back and meditate on the reality that Christ truly died. Lord's Day 16 makes it very clear. His burial, it says there, testified that he had really died. It wasn't as sometimes it's been charged, liberal scholars, critical scholars like to say, uh, it's called the swoon theory. Like the reason the resurrection happened was simply because Christ was, was asleep in the tomb. He couldn't die, the Son of God. Jesus couldn't have died, and so for a period of time he was asleep, and it was just three days later that he, he woke up, the swoon theory, they call it. But his burial, the catechism says, his burial testified that he had actually died. There were eyewitnesses. They thrust that spear into his side to make it clear that he was dead. He was there deliberately for three days because there was an old Jewish tradition that the spirits of dead people hung around the tomb for three days. And so it had to be absolutely certain that he was dead. Jesus Christ was dead in the grave. And then the third day came around, early morning. Have you ever stopped to think about the resurrection? The reality of it? These are truths that are very familiar to us. We sing it every Sunday. I believe the resurrection of the dead. I believe Jesus Christ buried, died, buried, descended into hell. He rose again on the third day. And we, stop, we don't stop enough to think about the reality of the resurrection. The body of Jesus was laying in the tomb and it was a corpse. Some of us know too well what a corpse looks like. It's lifeless and cold and empty. That was the body of Jesus. He was well and truly dead until the moment when God had planned before the beginning of time till the moment on the third day early in the morning. Listen to the way Andrew Peterson describes it in the song. His heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. The man who died upon a cross, his heart beats again. And the lungs that were dead and cold, they take in breath again. And the body that was a corpse 
comes to life again. Do you see the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? The Catechism says he has overcome death. Jesus Christ has plundered the grave for a purpose. The Catechism says by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death, so that he could make you share in the victory of the cross. His resurrection means that you share in his righteousness. His resurrection guarantees your new status before God. The reason you can stand before God as one who is forgiven of your sins, justified, righteous, not guilty before God is because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ has risen from the dead. Because the moment his heart began to beat again, the moment his lungs filled with air, it was a testimony, a guarantee that God had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Because it proved that the grave was plundered. Because the resurrection guarantees that the wrath of God is satisfied. The reality is, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation, there is no more wrath because it was satisfied at the cross of Christ. God would be unjust to pour out any wrath or condemnation upon any of those who are in Christ Jesus on the final day because it's already been satisfied in Christ. For him to pour out any more wrath on those who belong to Christ would be an injustice. That's because the resurrection of Christ guarantees your status before him. I am forgiven. I am not guilty. I am righteous. I am justified before God because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That changes everything. It changes everything because this new status also brings us new life. Not only does it guarantee our justification, it guarantees our sanctification The Catechism teaches us what's the second benefit of Christ's resurrection. By his power, we too are raised up to a new life. I want you to think at this moment of baptism as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6. Perhaps you've seen it on the mission field in particular or other churches practice immersion for baptism. We have it in our own form as well. The sprinkling with water or immersion teaches us certain truth And Paul teaches us in Romans 6 that baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. And immersion pictures that powerfully. It is being immersed in water, dunked under the water, is a picture of our old nature, our old flesh being crucified with Christ. Picture for yourself if you were to remain in the water. It's clear what would happen if you stayed there too long. That's a picture of our death with Christ. We are crucified. We are buried in the grave with Christ. Well, resurrection is the glorious flip side. We are raised with him to a new life. We are brought up out of the waters of baptism, and we receive the new life of Christ. The baptism is not just a reminder of the cross of Christ, but of the empty tomb of Christ. Then we want to ask, what's this new life? What does resurrection life look like? I'll have a look again at our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in particular uh, verses 32 uh, to 34. There Paul says, if the dead do not rise, and he starts with the negative, if the dead do not rise and if Christ has not been raised, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. What's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that the hope and assurance of the resurrection is the only way to make sense of the Christian life. Once again, Paul assumes for the sake of argument, let's pretend as though the resurrection isn't true. What would that mean for Christians? Well, Paul says, you, you know what the, your motto should be if Christ has not been raised? The motto for your life, he says, it should be, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We're staying at the Crizzlebrink's boathouse, and they have these wonderful texts on the wall. The text over the sink is, um, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a beautiful text to cling to. Paul's saying, you know what, instead, if Christ hasn't been raised, then get rid of that text and put it in front of your sink or on your wall. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ hasn't been raised, then why in the world would you bother with the Christian life? But Paul says, but Christ has been raised. And so this can't be the motto of our lives. Our motto can't be let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The question we want to ask ourselves this afternoon is, then why do we so often live like that? Why does the Christian life so often look no different than the lives of those around us? We are running after the same things as exhaustingly. We are pursuing the same goals and the same priorities and our desires so often look no different than the desires of those around us. Let me ask you this afternoon, what fills your time? What occupies your calendar? What desires are you pursuing? What passions do you have? What are your priorities? Are you living for the same things everyone else is living for? Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Pursue comfort. Pursue happiness. Let me lay it on the hearts of the young people here this afternoon. As you think about your future, is this the motto that you are pursuing as you go forward into the future? Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What are your plans for your future? Is it to live the good life? Let me lay this on the hearts of the young men in our midst. Have you considered the great need we have for preachers of the gospel. This afternoon, in my scripture reading, I came to the passage of Matthew where Jesus says, lift up your eyes to the harvest and see the fields are ripe for the harvest. So pray to the Lord of harvest for laborers in the vineyard. This isn't just a call from me as the seminary professor. We are in dire need of young men who are willing to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. And not just the young men, the young women. We have a great need for Christian school teachers at the present. These are not careers that are attractive to those who are governed by the priorities and the ambitions of this world. And of course, those aren't the only options. Let me lay this on the hearts of all of you. Wherever God leads you, what is the motto going to be of your life? What is the thing that you are going to pursue with your life? You see, Christ has been raised, and so the motto cannot be, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Too often our ambitions, our passions, our desires are too weak. 
when I come across this quote of the Apostle Paul, I just think of something that C.S. Lewis taught me. Perhaps you've heard this quote as well. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child going about making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Playing around with mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he says, we are far too easily pleased. Christ has been raised. The door to eternal life has been opened and it changes Everything. It means that what we do here and now has eternal weight and eternal ramifications. It means that we can sacrifice here and now for the sake of an eternal life with God. Because death is no longer the end of everything, but only the beginning of the true life that never ends. And so we don't need to satisfy ourselves or attempt to satisfy ourselves with momentary, fleeting, temporary pleasures that leave you wanting more. Don't settle for mud pies in a slum when God is offering you a holiday at the sea. What we have received in Christ is infinite joy. Christ has been raised, and that makes all the difference. It transforms our lives from a pursuit of pleasure, of happiness, of comfort, to a pursuit of holiness and godliness. Remember, our old nature, that's where Paul is going. He says in verse, in verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. He's saying that old nature is dead. It's in the grave. It's buried with Christ. And you've been raised to a, a new life. And so the catechism is trying to teach us. It says, by his power, we too are raised up to his, a new life. By the resurrection power of Jesus, you have a new life. You are not living the old life anymore which is subject to all the same passions as you formerly had, the same sins that formerly characterized our lives. Sanctification, growth, and holiness and godliness is a fruit of the resurrection of Jesus. What that means is that it only comes through union with Christ, through being united to him by faith. If you are struggling in your sin. If your pursuit of holiness and godliness is non-existent, then your problem is not that you need to try harder and do better, as I said this morning. It's that you need to flee to Christ because it's the resurrection power of Christ that transforms us day by day. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul, this is a different place, he prays for the Ephesian believers. He prays these amazing prayers and they're worth meditating on and modeling our own prayers after. Among the requests that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 1 is this. He says he wants the believers to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What's Paul praying for? See, that we would know the same power that raised Christ from the dead. What he is saying is that the believer has access to resurrection power for the purpose of holiness and godliness. The same power that God used to rest 
Jesus from the grave is given to the believer to help us to grow in this new life that we have received through the death of Christ, to resist sin, to put off the old nature, to put on the new nature, to grow in godliness, to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. All these things are given to us as a benefit of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why at the very end of the chapter, Paul comes to this. He says at the very end, chapter, uh, verse 58, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's saying, listen, nothing then that you do in pursuing after Christ is empty or without value. Pursuing Christ is not settling for less. It is not placing a curb on your happiness in this life. It is not condemning yourself to a life of less joy. The path of righteousness is the path to infinite joy. None of your labor for the Lord is ever in vain because Christ has been raised. So because Christ has been raised, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Orient your life around the gospel. Pour yourself wholeheartedly into the gospel. Sacrifice yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus because infinite joy is on offer and life eternal is in store. Nothing is vain and nothing is empty because Christ has been raised from the dead. And there's one final benefit as we take it from justification to sanctification we finish with this. The confession says, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Paul uses this wonderful phrase to talk about Christ's resurrection. He calls it the first fruits. I hardly need to educate people who live in a community like this in, in farming metaphors, perhaps, coming from the city. But Paul speaks of first fruits as being a guarantee of the fullness of the harvest. That is, the believers would give of their first fruits, trusting, knowing that the full harvest would be coming in. It was a guarantee. The fact that Christ has been raised is a guarantee of your resurrection, a pledge, a promise, a seal, a sign, a symbol. Because Christ has been raised, we who are united to him by faith will also be where he is. We will be with him. That's what the first fruits were all about. The harvest would follow. They were like a down payment on the house. The first deposit with a guarantee that the rest would come in time. In this way, we may know that the bodies that we lay in the grave, those who belong to Jesus, will be raised on the final day. Why? Because Christ has been raised. Because his heart beats. Because his lungs expand. And so those who belong to him will also be raised in the final day. Paul writes these glorious words in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Christ's resurrection guarantees our glorification. I can't hear these words apart from hearing Handel's Messiah in my, in my mind, behold, I tell you a mystery. 
If you've ever read these words at a graveside, you know the hope that they give. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet. Do you think much about the coming of Christ? Do you think much about the reality that Christ is returning? The one thing that remains in the history of redemption is for Christ to return on the clouds of heaven. And in that moment, everything will be restored because Christ has been raised. Because he is in the presence of God even now with his flesh and body and blood and his heart still beats. Because Christ has been raised, you also will be raised with him. These bodies that we lay in the grave, they will beat again. The blood will flow through their veins. Their lungs will again expand. They will be raised incorruptible, immortal, never to die again, never subject again to decay, completely and utterly incorruptible. That is your future if you are in Christ Jesus. Behold, I tell you a mystery, your heart will beat again. Your flesh will live on the new earth. These words fill our days even now with meaning and purpose. Nothing is in vain because we are not creatures of a day. We are creatures of eternity. We are created to live in fellowship with God and we will live in fellowship with God in perfection for all eternity, forever and ever and ever when Christ returns. Death has been swallowed up in victory because Christ has been raised. Death has no sting because Christ has been raised. Death has no power because Christ has been raised. Sin has no power over you because Christ has been raised. The law has no power over you because Christ has been raised. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.